Welcome to the Museum of Femininity. My name is Charlotte Appleyard and I will be doing a little solo podcast for you today. So this episode will probably be a little bit shorter and more focused in on one particular topic. So the topic I've chosen to talk about today is foot binding, which is something I feel a lot of people are quite aware of. It's one of those sort of morbid curiosities where You may have seen um, an example of a lotus shoe in a museum. It's a sort of thing that perhaps would have appeared in books like uh, the Guinness Book of World Records or Ripley's Believe It or Not. However, I think it's important to to desensationalise these heritages, which may be surprising to us or unfamiliar because it was very normal for people going through it and we can look at things from a very western perspective that is perhaps not too helpful without first contextualising what it is we are judging. So first of all I think it's important to just talk about what foot binding is. So dominantly originated from China and before I get into the history I'll just quickly explain to you the process of foot binding. So it exclusively happened to young girls in mostly China and the foot binding process would start between the ages of four and nine and this was before the arch of the foot had developed fully. It tended to occur in the winter months because it was more likely that the foot would be numb and it would prevent it from hurting as much. So first of all, the foot would be softened with warm water and animal blood. Toenails would be cut back to prevent ingrowth and infection. And then cotton bandages, which were three metres long and five centimetres wide, would be prepared and soaked in blood and herb mixture. So during this gruesome process, the toes were curled underneath the foot and pressed forcefully downward until the toes broke. Toes were held against the sole of the foot while the foot was drawn down straight with with the leg and this would break the arch of the foot. So you can imagine the absolute agony these young girls would have experienced when they first had their foots broken in this way. So there was, of course, a very physical element to this. It was something that would have given them immense pain. However, in their minds, this was seen as a rite of passage and some of them may have welcomed it or expected it because it was just the way things were done. You know, they may have seen other young ladies getting married and being sought after and admired because of their very small feet that had been deformed and shortened due to foot binding and they may have in a sense wanted the same thing for themselves so it must have been very confusing to see this as being a normal thing but to at the same time have to suffer through such agony. So after this happened the foot would be unbound on a regular basis however before that could happen It was, of course, sewn shut to prevent the girl from loosening the bandages. 
so I imagine that would have happened from time to time. It may have been too much to bear and they would have tried to get out of that situation. However, the foot, uh, the, the bandages would have been unwound from time to time um, for wealthy women. This perhaps happened on a daily basis because it was important the foot had to be washed and rebound to prevent infection. And there were even professional foot binders who would perform this task. It would get to such an extent that reversing it would be pretty much impossible. And of course with this there would come a myriad of health issues. So the most common problem with bound feet was of course infection. And this would happen in spite of the amount of care taken and the regular trimming of toenails and things like that. And this infection would cause injuries to the toe and sometimes the toes would actually fall off. Sometimes this wasn't even seen as a bad thing because it made binding the foot a lot easier. And unfortunately, there was a lot of rotting flesh and often the stench would be quite potent. It is also predicted that around 10% of girls may have died from gangrene and other infections due to foot binding. Older women who had gone through this process were also more likely to break their hips and other bones and falls uh, because they couldn't balance securely on their feet and they were less able um, to rise to their feet from sitting position. Other issues that would arise included paralysis and muscular atrophy. So these are very serious, debilitating issues. So the history of this practice is quite fascinating. There is a legend surrounding it that says foot binding began as far back as the Shang dynasty. So this is the first dynasty of China and it ranges from 1700 to 1027 BC when the Shang Empress, who had a club foot, demanded that foot binding be made compulsory in the court. I'm not sure if this was particularly true and one of the more prevailing myths about this comes from the Song Dynasty and that was 960 to 1279 AD and it is said that foot binding truly began during the reign of Li Yu who ruled over one region of China between 961 and 975. It is said that his heart was captured by a concubine called Yao Niang, who was a dancer who bound her feet to suggest the shape of a new moon and performed a lotus dance. So that's really the stuff of myth and legend. And it conjures up lots of romantic images and quite erotic images as well that would be prevalent throughout the history of foot binding. So at first it was something that was very common in court circles. However, of course, the aspiring wealthy classes would have wanted to emulate these incredibly high class women and it did eventually spread into the cities and even the countryside because there was a certain social climbing aspect to having bound feet as it was associated with members of the court. 
young girls who lived in the country, they would have looked at this and seen it as a way of elevating their status and making themselves much more marriageable. It's an age-old thing, isn't it? Women changing their appearances to make themselves more attractive and to give the allure and the appearance of being of a higher class. And this was just one way girls who grew up in poor circumstances could get themselves out of poverty. So who can blame them, really? Perhaps to them, the pain was worth suffering through. Of course, in the Mantua period, which was around 1644, we have the Mongols, who are not from the sort of Han Chinese stock, and they did not bind their feet. And in fact, they wanted to ban the process, but it continued regardless and often in secret. The first anti-foot binding committee was formed in Shanghai by a British priest in 1874. So you can sort of imagine a, a kind of colonial world. And this was very common, I think, with the British Empire, that we sort of spread our tentacles throughout the world and try to improve different cultures. You see this in India as well, where we look at ourselves as being the superior race and everyone else has so much to learn from us. It's very problematic and is rife with sort of racial tension and feelings of superiority. You see this in the sort of evolutionary sciences at the time. And I'm very glad that now we, to a certain extent, live in a much more accepting world. And it's pretty amazing to think that the practice of foot binding was not completely outlawed until 1912. So it does show that it really carried on for hundreds of years. And when you see things like that, it's quite evident that it's so ingrained in the psyche of people that it must have been very hard to sort of shake off the custom and again I'm sure people carried on doing it it wasn't like they were rushing to get rid of the practice it prevailed even beyond them and in fact up until very recently there was still elderly women living in parts of South China who still had their foot bindings so even into the late 20th century in early 21st century, there were people living who had their feet bound. So a year after the communists came to power in 1949, they issued their own ban on foot binding. So this shows that since the initial ban, it had to be reinstated, but the message had not quite got across. And according to the American author William Rossi, who wrote The Sex Life of the Foot and Shoe, 40% to 50% of Chinese women had bound feet in the 19th century. For the upper classes, the figure was almost 100%. It's just shocking to think. It's something, you've probably seen photos of it, and from my description at the beginning, it's quite clear that this was, you know, quite, quite a physically altering process. And it's quite hard to comprehend, but... There are photos of unbound feet and it is really horrifying to look at just from a purely objective point of view. 
and this was normal. They must have been totally desensitised to the image of, you know, rotting flesh and toes pressed so tightly against the soles of their feet that it's almost like they're, you know, a part of the foot. It must have been very hard to walk and to do anything, really. It, it, it's quite oppressive when you think about it. Women wouldn't have been able to run or have much mobility at all. So I think it, but when you think about things like that, it does seem like they were quite restrictive and immobile. But yet it was something that was considered incredibly desirable. So you can blame them for wanting that if that, if that was what was common because even today everyone you know they want to be beautiful don't they to a certain extent of course most young girls they want to sort of fit in to the the beauty standards of their day so I am sympathetic to it but still it's pretty pretty horrifying the thought of a five-year-old girl having her feet broken in that way it's just terrible so some estimate that as many as 2 billion Chinese women broke and bound their feet to attain this ideal of physical perfection. And author Yang Yang says that women with tiny feet were a status symbol and they were seen as bringing honour on their entire family. So there is a certain family pressure perhaps that pushes women into doing this. So why was this done? Before I'm going to go into that, I just want to point out an object which we can use to visualise what this, what shoe binding was about. So the object I'm going to talk about is a really beautiful pair of shoes. So they're red silk shoes that were made for bound feet. They're embroidered with a stalk, flower and butterfly motif and have grey and green commercial ribbon attached to the cuffs and silk vamp appliques. The, orn the ornately decorated curved wooden soles are covered with cotton with an embroidered green swastika on, the, on each of the hills. So these are really stunning shoes. But again, it's, it's interesting. I do recommend looking up Lotus shoes because... It, it, it truly illustrates just how tiny their feet were. And there are lots of comparative images online where you can see one of these shoes compared with a normal lady's average size foot. And it's kind of like, like something you would put on your newborn. It's absolutely tiny. And the ideal length was just three inches. And this was called the Golden Lotus. Gosh, I, I can't... I'm. In a way, I think these women were sort of athletes for being able to stand up at all. So these shoes, they date from the 19th century. So this was in the height of foot bindings popularity. And they are just 10 centimetres long and 6 centimetres wide. So truly tiny. So it's likely these shoes were also handmade at home. Again, it shows a certain personal touch to it, that this was something the wearer would have actively engaged in. And the motifs on the shoes are symbolic of fertility, longevity, happiness, wealth and success. So it just shows that doing this to yourself was associated with really positive things and it was something everyone would have wanted to do. 
So there were also different kinds of shoes. Some would be worn indoors, outdoors. You could have shoes for sleeping in or funerary shoes as well. And they were often made from very lavish materials like silk and felt. But also there would have to be a certain structural integrity. So like with this one, you see wood has been incorporated into the structure of the shoe. As, and often you see bamboo as well, which would have you know helped them, I think, walk properly. And of course, by putting these sorts of foundations into the, the, the shoe itself, it would, it would have affected their gait and you know, helped them walk around. The particular shoe we're talking about here was also supposed to be worn indoors. It was probably worn by a fairly wealthy lady. Um, I'll also include a photograph of a woman showing her foot. Uh, this photo I found online and it's an image by a photographer called Lai Afong and it dates from 1870-ish, so that sort of decade. And I think it's very intriguing because it shows this lady who's in this lovely silk garment, her hair pulled back and she has a, a sort of gold earring on and she's sitting in this lovely sort of brocade chair and her foot is propped up on some sort of uh, stand and it's an unbound foot so you can see the sort of shortness of it and the way the heel is kind of bunched up. And she's displaying it for the world to see, and there's something quite voyeuristic about it, as if she's propping her foot up to sort of change her shoes or her wrappings. And it is strangely titillating. It's almost as if we're watching something we shouldn't be watching. And I think that's interesting because it definitely links up with the sort of salacious aspects of foot binding and the fetishism you often see um, in this practice. So there were sort of two sides to it and it's this oddly kind of pervasive thing that was really linked with Chinese heritage and culture and it was something that was tied up with conventional marriage and honour to your family, making yourself more respectable. But at the same time, you have these feet that are so dainty and beautiful and they're bound up in these gorgeous embroidered silk shoes. But then underneath there's sort of destruction and violence and broken bones and rotting flesh and foul odour. It's this sort of decay underneath a beautiful veneer and there's a, a, a certain kind of poetry to that which I think perhaps links up with the way foot binding was viewed by people, especially men. So to go a bit more into depth about this, so I, ha I have mentioned there was a definite erotic connotation to this, and as well as the secrecy behind what's beneath the foot and the daintiness of it, it did affect the gait of a woman so much that they would rely on their thighs and their buttocks muscles to support themselves so it would have given them a sort of tottering way of walking that may have had slightly erotic overtones and I read this book actually so the book is called Wild Swans Free Daughters of China by Zheng Chang it's 
a really great book and it's a sort of great sweeping epic that spans many, many decades and three generations of women. But the author, she mentioned her grandmother um, who had her foot bound and I think she sort of said that men liked it because it made the women seem vulnerable and it gave them a certain helplessness which men found very arousing. So that's kind of interesting. It's a great book, I really recommend. There was also a certain hierarchy about the size of your foot and I sort of mentioned that before the golden lotus, so that's three inches and then you have the silver lotus which is four inches and that was still considered quite respectable and then god, god forbid your feet were any larger than five inches which was called the iron lotus and was basically like saying you why did you even bother and the the sort of perfect set of qualifications that you know made your feet really top notch was that they were small obviously slim pointed arched soft and straight and almost like a work of art and if you met all of these criterias, it made a woman appear to be like a celestial being, you know, there was something quite magical about it, and uh, sort of enigmatic, I suppose. And it was, I mean, it all goes back to sort of class and wealth, and there was a definite visual, very striking indicator of a woman being hybrid, which made her from a financial point of view, a much more desirable wife. So there's that, there's that sort of practical thing. It's very interesting, there's lots of juxtapositions. You have the practicality of it being a very strong indicator that a girl is from a good background and has money. At the same time, you have all of these very like sexual connotations and sort of mysticism behind it. And, and that goes back to the legend. That kind that people still talk about about the courtesan dancer, you know she wasn't respectable, but somehow that has continued uh, throughout history. That is the sort of starting point people like to fixate on. Yeah, so taboo object of desire, but also something that's sacred, but sort of dying in a way with the dying skin. So it's it's a very puzzling part of history. Although, in saying that, to be honest, we see examples of practices like this in every culture. I, for one, think the corset wasn't much better, and the desire for a freakishly small waist in the Victorian era was quite strange. And when you think about how this also started when women were children, and corseting would get to such an extreme level that ribs would be broken, organs would be moved and displaced in the body. It had very similar health repercussions to foot binding. So this is exactly the sort of thing I was referring to about sort of quickly judging other customs in different cultures before really reflecting on our own. So I think if you take anything away from this episode, it would be that. So the sources I've used for today are the Smithsonian website and also a book called Aching for Beauty, Footbinding in China 
by Wang Ping. There's lots of great resources online and it's a widely researched topic and I would very much recommend diving in and finding out more about it. And there are also many first-hand accounts of these older women talking about their experiences of foot binding. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please check us out on our social media platforms. Let us know what you thought. Leave a review. So our Twitter handle is at museum underscore of underscore fem. That's capital F-E-M. And Instagram, you can follow us at the Museum of Femininity. So I hope you do that and I hope you very much enjoyed it today. Thanks for listening. Bye. But there were important times where girls refused to bow to expectations. They took a stand, they stood for all the things women have to tell.